Hey, Adam. And hello, everyone. Welcome to, what is it? Season, Season three. three. That's right. Of River Talks. <laughs> We're back after, what, an extended hiatus? Uh, you know, we were just doing a lot of planning for season three. Right. Getting and a few so, new writers in the writer's room. Right. And the, the fruits of our labor are here. Yes. Or a fruit of our labor. Yes. With hopefully more fruits to come. No, I think we're going to have some really exciting things uh, during this season. But this episode, I think both of us thought was particularly interesting. It's a great interview that we had. Um, we spoke with Ray Kim yep. from Stanford mm-hmm. about MELD 3.0 and kind of the implications of that paper, and also the history of the MELD score was really, uh, I think, quite fascinating. Yes, I learned a lot. I think, you know, it certainly seems like MELD 3.0 is the wave of the future and eventually will be adopted, and so getting to actually talk to one of, slash, the creator of it and really get into the nuance of how some of the variables came to be and how they interact with each other, I think has legitimate clinical significance moving forward. And so it was interesting to hear about sort of meld one and two, but to get this in-depth sneak peek of meld 3.0 was uh, awesome. Totally, totally agree. And so before uh, we get into the interview, Mm -hmm. uh, Alex and I, we wanted to talk a little bit about our new initiative at uh, Liverfellow Network called The Workroom. Um, which is an online community for trainees in GI and hepatology. It's Slack-based, and it's a forum for anyone really to air any of the questions that they have about either a clinical conundrum, the job process, transplant hepatology fellowship application. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a judgment-free zone. There are no faculty on there. No. Uh, Right? No. Okay. No, there are Um, not. Yeah. There okay, may be no- invited guests occasionally, but there are no faculty in the main chats. Right. And we already have over 100 people uh, participating, which I think is, is pretty amazing. Yes. Um, this has only been out for, you know, what, like a, a couple, couple of days now? <laughs> yeah, a couple of days. And uh, it's going strong. You can hear some of my, uh, my opinions on the, the job hunt, <laughs> if, if you're so inclined. Um, but we really encourage you to, to head over to liverfellow.org. There's instructions on how to join. It's pretty simple. You fill out a, a quick survey. And uh, and you get in. Yeah, I, I think it has exceeded my expectations thus far. And uh, we should give a quick thank you to uh, the AGA Academy of Educators who gave us a grant so that we could create the workroom. But um, some of the threads have been quite interesting thus far. And the whole reason why it's called the workroom is, you know, most fellowships have some sort of workroom where ideas are sort of freely bouncing around. But we thought it would be way more helpful and interesting if you had people from every workroom in the country uh, sort of talking to each other. And so the clinical slash general one has been super interesting with people talking about their different practices around a variety of sort of common inpatient hepatology issues with papers being added and all sorts of stuff like that. It's been significantly more scholarly than I was expecting, yeah. um, but also <laughs> quite helpful. And then the, the the job hunt, which takes sort of two forms. One is for your first attending job, and hopefully you'll share a little bit about that with us at some point in season three. Um, and uh, the transplant hepatology application process, which has changed a lot, and you've been instrumental in that, as we've discussed before. And so I think there's something for everybody there. It's no time commitment, uh, and there's really no downside in, in joining. Uh, and so I would highly encourage any of our listeners that are still trainees of any grade um, to head to liverfellow.org and submit the survey so that you can join. 
Yeah. The only caveat is that it, you have to be uh, a trainee in the United States yeah. for right now. Um, so for those of you who are international, uh, we hope to expand it in the future to, to you guys. But for now, it has to be uh, for trainees in the U.S. All right. So without further ado, uh, our interview with Dr. Ray Kim. Now I'd like to welcome in our episode's guest, Dr. Ray Kim, who is a professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology in the Department of Medicine at Stanford University, where I hope the weather is much nicer than it is here on the East Coast. Yes. Um, he is the <laughs> lead author of the recent article, uh, MELD 3.0, The Model for End-Stage Liver Disease Updated for the Modern Era, which was published in Gastroenterology this past December. Dr. Kim, thank you so much for making time for us. It is my pleasure to be here. California's been dry for the past few weeks, so uh, we have the sun, but we have the anxiety in our heart that you know water shortage and wildfires uh, are persistent threats for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you want about a foot of snow, <laughs> we're, we're happy to send it your way. Yeah, we can try to meet yeah, in the middle. Please do. Um, so before please we do. get into the into the article, which I think we'll spend the bulk of our conversation talking about, I wanted to ask you to describe the, the scope of your current practice and, and what got you interested in, in liver diseases initially. I do about 30% patient care and I, I have some transplant outpatient uh, practice where I get grounded in, in transplant. But uh, it's been uh, uh, some time since I got too busy with uh, uh, non-clinical stuff. So I stopped rounding in the hospital and mainly in the clinic and I do transplant and general hepatology practice. Uh, that's been the pattern in the past few years. Liver disease was of interest to me because uh, as a freshman in college, I had hepatitis. I had an acute hepatitis and I was really sick. And in retrospect, huh. I could have died actually. Huh. And I, I was thinking uh, killed over in my a dad's uh, car backseat that I was going to the hospital and I felt like I'm so sick that I may not come back home. And I got there a few days later, the rounding team came through and said, we have your diagnosis, you have hepatitis B. And um, I thought that's what it was. And then it was a cute episode. I I recovered from that uh, sickness. I was in the hospital for about two weeks. And then, so that that motivated me. And one of the, the doctors said, you know, we made the diagnosis for you, but we have no treatment for you. You just need to get better on your own. So that kind of uh, ticked me off that we, I need to do something different <laughs> to, uh, to improve the outcome of patients with hepatitis. And we still don't have, uh, you know, curative treatment for the condition that I had. But um, I, I think uh, we are much better uh, now hepatology-wise compared to then, which was 1980. And interestingly, as I got to know hepatitis serology better as a medical student, I figured out that it was hepatitis A. So I, mm. I had no core antibodies, uh, but I had a hepatitis A IgG at that point. So uh, uh, that's what I had. And in, 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 in adults, hepatitis A could be, could be really seriously dangerous, yep. leading to transplant and whatnot. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what got me uh, going in hepatology. Wow. Yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And that's yeah. definitely the best uh, origin story we've yet had on uh, the podcast. <laughs> right, right. 
Um, so switching gears to the paper that Adam had alluded to, MELD 3.0, the model for end-stage liver disease updated for the modern era, um, where we'd like to spend most of our time here. So MELD 3.0 implies that there was a MELD 1.0 and a MELD 2.0. And so before getting to uh, your paper and the suggestions for what MELD should look like moving forward, um, could you talk a little bit about sort of the history of the MELD score and what the evolution has been prior to your paper? Sure. I'm going to give you a long version, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Yeah. yeah. So this was um, around 2000. I was very lucky to inherit my mentor's R01 uh, study team. And uh, we were working on prediction models. At that point, it was more on primary biliary cholangitis, which is now uh, primary cholangitis, and then um, liver transplant outcome of patients with PBC. And then two of my mentors uh, came into the picture, uh, the other mentors. And, and, and the first is uh, uh, Patrick Hammoth at Mayo. We, um, he wanted to um, work on a prediction model for TIPS, patients undergoing TIPS procedure. And, you know, I was a young epidemiology-oriented researcher. And in my view, TIPS affects 0.001% of hepatology patients. I thought that was somewhat of a minor importance. Um, so I said, you know, um, yes, you can utilize my uh, research resources to work on the project, but I don't know if it is going to be core of my research program. So, you know, I'll, I'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. And and sure enough, he, he did the work uh, collaborating with uh, many uh, in and outside the institution and came up with a model that was carefully constructed and got published. And I didn't think it was, you know, in my arrogant youth, I didn't think it was uh, significant enough that if you look at the, the, the tips paper, I'm not even on the paper, although <laughs> it was it was out of my um, group. So that was my first mentor uh, that, you know, generated the tips paper. And a year or so later, um, the second mentor who came into the picture is Russ Wiesner who was a, a transplant, sort of a, a grandfather of transplant uh, field. And he was at that time, UNO's president. And that's when the Clinton administration, uh, Department of Health and Human Services sort of uh, got into transplant and decided they're gonna revolutionize the transplant allocation system and demanded UNO's to come up with more scientific way of allocating organs as opposed to just waiting time. And that's where the final rule, the so-called so final rule uh, uh, came into picture that they set up a basic rule that patients need to be allocated based on medical urgency, barring fertility, and take uh, uh, the minimize the importance of uh, waiting time and other potentially socially or economically influenced factors in medicine. So Russ came to the group and said, we are under the gut that we need to revise this and come up with a really something scientific. So we started looking at all the models, prediction models and chronic liver disease, mm -hmm. uh, sort of the uh, existing at that point. And however we looked at it, the TIPS model performed <laughs> better than anything else. So the stepchild of our research program uh, became the darling of, uh, uh, of the team. 
So we we looked at it in many different angles, and and we were convinced that that is the the best model uh, to propose. And one of the advantages is is that it is simple and is based on laboratory data. And that was one of the things that was desirable because objective, verifiable variables are really useful in national policy setting. So, mm-hmm. so we 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 sort of a rescale the, the tips model and and modified a little bit and proposed to Russ and Russ took it to the organization and they put some insights about the model like the having floor of 1.0 for all the variables and having uh, creating a cap of 4.0 milligrams all of that came from the UNOS committee it's not what we proposed based on st- statistical uh, significance their clinical intuition that, you know, bilirubin less than one, that should not be um, sort of a something important in terms of discriminating patients' outcome. So all of that was added, and then it went through the uh, policymaking process and got a- adopted as a MEL score, and that was MEL's 1.0. <laughs> and, and then uh, we were really honored that our you know, little model from sort of nerdy group of people became a national <laughs> standard. So we were happy with that. And then uh, several years later, it the, sort of the, the literature converged that uh, serum sodium seems to be a, an independent predictor mm-hmm. for patient outcome uh, apart from MELD. So in, initially, I we were of the attitude that, oh, MELD is the best. We looked at this many, many, many different ways, and it can't be it can't be improved. It's the best thing that there is. And, and then we got warmed up to the idea of, of uh, sodium being an important predictor. And then as we looked into uh, that more, um, yeah, sure enough, uh, uh, sodium became an important one. And so we had uh, that data put together. It came out as uh, uh, a paper in Young Journal Medicine. So that, in my mind, is MEL 2.0 that mm-hmm. we were able to improve the original MEL score. So that became the national standard in 2016. So that's the history. <laughs> yeah, really fascinating look back at the, at the yes, MEL score. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And then, so that brings us to MEL 3.0. And in, in your mind, and I guess just more generally, what were the the primary issues with meld sodium that led to you, you know, your group's interest in adding or sort of looking at for more variables? And you know, leading up to this, was there resistance to you know either further defining the score? I mean, you, you mentioned that initially you thought the first meld score was was perfect. Did have, did you find that there was some resistance going from from two to three? Sure. So since the 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 current or melt sodium got implemented even before uh, there have been authors that show the accuracy of melt score prediction so typically it's a concordance statistic that people talk about and how melt or the prediction system efficiently or correctly rank people according to their risk that uh, seems to have gradually decreased over time hmm. and as we review the literature, some of that uh, was because they did not apply statistics correctly. And mm-hmm. that was our first sort of a same kind of attitude that um, you guys messed it up. 
meld is too good. <laughs> yeah. um, and then it, it became a bit more, we, we became a bit more serious. And, and that's because the epidemiology changed in organ transplant. And a few things, one is that uh, people are getting sicker and there are a lot more uh, patients meld over 30, mm-hmm. uh, which compresses data in the upward uh, part of the scale. Uh, disease epidemiology has changed. So when MELD was being uh, developed and implemented, hep C was sort of king in transplant. But as you know, uh, starting in mid-2010s, uh, hep C has become rapidly uh, become a smaller part of the pie. So yep. we have more NASH patients, we have more alcohol patients in the recent era. And there may be some biological differences in those patients, and especially for NASH patients who tend to have diabetes and other chronic comorbidities, the significance of creatinine in that setting may be different than patients who have pure liver disease and uh, the serum creatinine more or less reflect AKI as opposed to CKD. So uh, those epidemiological insight made us think about, you know, what can we do better? The the other thing is the sex disparity, uh, which was really tr- uh, troublesome. There was a paper that came out in JAMA that looked at pre-meld, this is a meld 1.0, versus post-meld. And we were really pleased to see that meld score essentially eliminated disparities in, by race. So what, what happened prior to meld in the waiting list era is the patients who have lower access uh, to tra- healthcare in general, mm-hmm. uh, patients didn't have the wherewithal to present themselves with mild chronic liver disease to be followed in healthcare and be put on the waiting list in a sort of an appropriate time to accrue significant uh, waiting time to be on the top of the list by the time they get really sick. People who had poor or access, just showed up on ED and liver failure, and they had zero waiting time, right? So um, that that is a source of disparity, whereas implementation of male score, it, it doesn't matter, right? Whether you're, uh, you've been on the waiting list for two years or a week, male score is king. So that eliminated access issue. So if you look at the uh, racial disparity in um, getting to transplant. Once you're in the system, getting to transplant, uh, MELD eliminated that. But on the other hand, if you look at uh, men versus women, there was no difference in the waiting list era. The waiting time, again, is king, and gender did not make a difference. But since MELD was implemented, women got disadvantaged. Mm. That was a very striking part. Uh, of that paper. And that is an issue that uh, obviously we need, needed to address. So those two things, that epi- epidemiological changes, that we needed a, an updated MELD score for the new era or the uh, modern era and addressing the sex disparity. Those were the keen, uh, our keen interest to try to look at this issue. Yeah, thank you. And so with the table now precisely set, what, what were the sort of major changes that are suggested for MELD 3.0? Yes. So the transition from MELD 1.0 to 2.0 was a relatively minor that we wanted to introduce sodium, 
but we wanted to keep the original MEL score intact. So we didn't refit the model. We just added sodium and discovered that there was an interaction between MELD and sodium. So the MELD-sodium equation is simple three-term model, MELD score, sodium, and the interaction term. This time, we wanted to just uh, refit the whole thing. So mm-hmm. we basically looked at all the variables that we could use, we felt like we could use, and that is objectively verifiable variables that could be implemented. And that basically added sex and albumin to the, the list of variables. So we refit the model and we wanted to decide the, the floor and ceiling uh, separately based on statistical significance and look for all the interactions that the, the variables may have on each other. So those were the basis of MEL 3.0. And reading the paper again, leading up to this discussion, I could feel like there's a lot of debate. And I think in writing the paper, it seems like your group, you and your group have sort of tried to stem some of it in terms of incorporating hypoalbuminemia into the, the score itself. You know, the concern being that it may discourage clinicians from infusing albumin um, to, I guess, reduce or increase the serum albumin and thus decrease the the potential mouth score. And I was curious now that the paper has been out for a little while, what, what kind of feedback you've gotten from your colleagues or people who've read the paper about the inclusion of albumin. And of course, there's a version that you include that doesn't include albumin. Um, that seems to be slightly less accurate, but still, you know, still an improvement. Um, and then assuming that MEL 3.0, let's just hypothetically say it gets adopted, would, would you personally be in favor of including the albumin, uh, the score with albumin uh, incorporated? Let me first uh, describe the model with the albumin. It has the MEL 3.0 with the albumin, um, has the male variables, and then we have female sex, and then albumin score. And then there are two interaction terms, and one is interaction that preexisted. Uh, which is with sodium. And it turned out that the interaction between MELD and sodium may be uh, localized to the bilirubin variable. So the first interaction term is bilirubin and albumin interaction. And uh, the second is, um, turns out, albumin and creatinine interactions. So for people who are not epidemiology nerds or statistical nerds, the interaction... (laughs) Uh, means that the effect is modified. So, you know, taking back to MEL 2.0, MEL sodium, as the MEL score increases, the impact of sodium decreases, right? And at, so if your MEL is high, then it doesn't matter what your sodium level mm-hmm. uh, is, whereas uh, impact of the sodium is the greatest when MEL score is lowest. So that's the interaction that's impact of sodium is not constant. It is modified by the MEL score. So the interaction between bilirubin and sodium is the same way. If the bilirubin is really high, the impact of sodium is reduced. Uh, sodium's impact is the highest when bilirubin is more or less normal. The, the interaction between creatinine and albumin is as the albumin decreases, the risk of death goes up. But that impact is modified by creatinine. So if your creatinine level is high, it doesn't matter what your albumin is. Mm-hmm. Albumin's impact is when your creatinine is more or less normal. Okay. So, so that was the, the, 
the concept. And by the way, the albumin is uh, capped between 1.5 at the lower end and 3.5 on the higher end. Mm-hmm. So as you indicated, the concern is that if albumin is part of the score, then patients get advantaged by having low albumin. And, and therefore, physicians may withhold giving albumin in patients who have low albumin but need albumin. And that would be encouraging poor practice. And that's the concern. And on the one hand, that kind of system existed from day one, and that's INR, right? Mm-hmm. So if right. a physician wanted to really sort of uh, uh, improve a patient's uh, transplant eligibility, they could use cumidine uh, in theory. I don't know anybody else, anybody who does that actually, but they, people may have lower threshold of keeping somebody on cumidine for a marginal indication or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, and same thing could be said uh, about creatinine. Um, you know, aggressively diuresing people and uh, inducing creatinine rise um, that could also be affected. In case of albumin, the interesting thing. Uh, with the uh, interaction with uh, creatinine is that because of the interaction, if the creatinine level is high, then the albumin loses effect. And if you think about the context in which albumin is yeah. medically indicated, it's usually in settings where creatinine is high. Mm-hmm. AKI, patients with sick SPP, you know, those are the main indications, patients who need uh, large volume presentesis. So it is the uh, people with compromised renal perfusion that the volume expansion by albumin is beneficial. That's the setting. So again, not to uh, be too nerdy about this. No, this is good. If you, no, this if is you co- very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you compare the coefficients for albumin and the albumin-creatinine interaction, they're almost exactly the same hmm. um, in, in reverse way. So. What that means is if the creatinine level is beyond 2.5 or so, albumin becomes positive. The effect of albumin gets reversed. So if, you're, if somebody's creatinine is high if, and the albumin is low, uh, you give the albumin, MELS 3.0 score actually goes up. Hmm. It's, it's a really small. It's a really small increment. But in, 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 in mathematical terms, there is a reversal because of interaction term. In high creatinine patients, effective albumin becomes positive. So it did, we didn't design it that way, but that's the way that the data came out. So I, I don't feel too bad about this albumin situation. I think it's the right item to be in the model. So I would advocate being, uh, that being in the model. And I think that the current proposal that is uh, being considered by the liver committee uh, of UNOS uh, has the model with LBN. Mm. It's a fascinating was, nuance. Yeah. Yes, that was very helpful. It's it's good to talk to the creator. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't come through on MD Calc. So, uh. <laughs> and so you you sort of alluded to this. I think the paper very convincingly sort of suggests that MEL 3.0 is both slightly better in predicting 90 day mortality, so better picking who should be getting priority on the wait list. And it does a good job of decreasing gender disparities in transplantation. So those are those are basically the goals that were set out for um, in creating the new score. 
what are the next steps in sort of translating this research into policy, into being what's adopted as the mechanism for waitlist priority? Right. So that's not uh, up to us. We, we, we are just a research team that is not connected to, in, in an official fashion, to UNOS. Um, uh, mm-hmm. um, so that, that the way the policy body uh, works is that uh, a key unit of the UNOS is the liver intestine committee that looks at various models, various issues, and uh, address what policy changes need to be made. And with with this paper and uh, sort of a broad realization of sex sex disparity, uh, the committee looked at the this and other models and decided to go forth. And they considered not this mo- model only, but also they asked the SRTR, their partner in data analysis, mm-hmm. to come up with their own model. And uh, they... Uh, wanted to test this variable, uh, this uh, permutation versus that permutation. They they looked at uh, several different forms of of this model, and to us, thankfully, uh, they decided that still MEL 3.0, as published, is seems to be the best tool to go with. So I think has gone through the committee. Now the the next step is that they will put this out for public comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's the requirement before any policy is implemented, and there will be a period of public comment, and they'll take the comment back and uh, make any adjustment as needed, and then they will put push that to the UNOS you know, board, which has the ultimate authority to implement uh, the policy. So mm-hmm. we are a couple of steps away from this being adopted, and just to give you a frame of reference, the Mel Sodium paper came out in two thousand eight. And a variant version of uh, the paper got adopted as policy as of 2016. Mm. So on the fast track. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the usual time frame that policies uh, decisions are made. Mm. But at this time, it is a lot more compressed. So I, I think it's gonna we're gonna have an answer this or some other version to be implemented, I, I think in the next 12 to 18 months. Interesting. Well, one question that's sort of come up in my head during this conversation is MELD is the best we have, but as we've sort of proven over the last 15 years, it does require tweaking. And with tweaking, it can be even better. And so do you think there's a role for having it be a little closer to sort of a living equation where there's some sort of committee or group that's really focused on constantly assessing it and figuring out when it even just the weighting of different variables that are already accepted need to change so that it's most predictive of mortality and thus the best way of deciding who should be getting these organs. Right. So we are a bit of a, at a, a little bit of a crossroads. So I get sometimes a bit flustered when people seem to think that MEL should address all the organ allocation issues, <laughs> um, right? So geographic distribution, um, racial inequality, the issue of height, and, and many different factors, they look to MEL to, to address. And MELD is just a simple mortality index. And mm-hmm. the, the way the system works is we come up with the best model to, to predict risk of death without transplant, right? This is sort of a natural experiment. If, if we can project who's going to die without a transplant, that's the role of MELSPOR. Mm-hmm. So I try to keep 
the model sort of a pure in, in mm-hmm. that sense. And uh, during the review process uh, of the paper, uh, the rev- more than one reviewer had comments about the height issue. And as you know, people who have a larger body size can take organs of differing size, whereas mm-hmm. people with a small abdominal cavity can only take small livers. And that correlates with uh, female sex having uh, tend to having lower, smaller body size and vice versa for men. But the choice of uh, different organs according to the body size is not mortality risk. It's sort of a man-made thing as it relates to transplant physiology. So it's not a, height is not a predictor of mortality. Height is how organs are allocated. So it's, it's not you know, risk of death indicator, it's, uh, it comes from transplantability. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of a, a little bit subtle, but that's the concept that I'm trying to maintain that the, the job of male score is try to really look at the natural history of, of uh, NCHW disease. So that's the attitude that we'll maintain, um, try to be the best we can. Um, the organ allocation policy and system continue to uh, evolve. And, you know, they are talking about artificial intelligence-based organ allocation system that incorporates all of the variables that we talked about, including geographic distribution um, um, and, and things like that, and which I welcome. Uh, we need the best tool to serve our patients the best. And I feel like we might be at the crossroad that MELD may become something like a child pew score as a clinical tool to determine who's going to do well and not well and in a clinical as a clinical uh, tool again, uh, whereas organ allocation becomes uh, something separate mm. that incorporates not only risk of death, but also all the other factors that affect patient outcome. Um, so there may be male 4.0 uh, <laughs> as we go forth uh, or not, and, and whether that may be part of the organ allocation system or not, that, that remains to be seen. But I, I hope that's helpful. Uh, that's my perspective on this topic. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. You know, we talked a little bit about how MELD 3.0 you know, is aimed at addressing some of the disparities in, in uh, transplantation and sort of EGFR calculations is another example of how, you know, our formulas can kind of worsen or perpetuate disparities. Are there any other areas within liver disease that you think we might be unknowingly contributing to disparities that we're looking to address and that might be good targets for research and and potential policy changes moving forward? I, I, I don't know if I have really good examples, but I can think of two things. One is primary biliary cholangitis. So we've been working in that field a little bit uh, more recently because the significance of bilirubin in PBC patients, you know, obviously is different or mm-hmm. maybe not obvious. It's uh, different than uh, parenchymal liver disease patients. And, you know, therapeutic development that may alter the bilirubin level, you know, Urso, uh, you know, quite often does that. And the second and third generation PBC treatment agents, what the impact of that on the bilirubin uh, vis-a-vis what bilirubin means uh, in those patient survival. And as of more, most recent data, in PBC patients, bilirubin is underweighted. So we need to give more credit to bilirubin in PBC patients. That's what the data tell us. And it's a relatively small group of patients, 
it may need to be handled in an exception score setting rather than wholesale change in the model. We don't know, but to the degree that uh, majority of PBC patients are women, and if their male score doesn't quite capture the risk uh, afforded by the bilirubin variables, uh, that creates a little bit of a disparity. Whether that is covered by the a sex variable in male 3.0, we need to reassess on an ongoing basis. So that's example number one. The other thing that I thought about was uh, liver cancer surveillance. There is age differential for hep B patients, uh, women for 50, men for 40. That's very crude. And uh, there are scoring systems that predict HCC instance uh, in a B patient. And that would be a more comprehensive way of looking at the whole risk as opposed to sex-based simple determination. And that's just hepatitis B, but we really badly need some sort of a tool to risk stratify patients with at risk of HCC. And, you know, I, I just had an older lady uh, in my clinic this week who has uh, cirrhosis from fatty liver disease. And we've been doing surveillance and she was good six months ago. And now she has infiltrating HTC. Wow. And that really, you know, uh, put us, you know, really th- uh, think about, you know, are we doing the right thing? Are we, mm. are we really risk stratifying patients? And, and I'm more and more impressed that the you know, NAFL epidemic and end-stage liver disease from cirrhosis, more women are affected by that. And, there's, there's still some gender disparity, uh, the way we approach NSH liver patients and how we, how we serve them. So there are still some, some areas in hepatology I think we need to be uh, cognizant of uh, in this regard. Yeah. No, thank you. Just before we uh, switch to the lightning round to finish things off, we think a lot of our listeners are uh, trainees, people interested in hepatology. And so whenever we have someone that's been highly successful within the field of hepatology, we always like to ask, is there any advice you would give or any advice you received when you were a trainee or junior faculty that has been particularly impactful in shaping your career? Uh, The advice that I received that I still carry uh, in my heart today is uh, research integrity. So my main mentor, uh, who I was lucky enough to inherit his uh, research program, is Raleigh Dixon, Raleigh Dixon Sr. And there was a, a paper that got retracted when I was in, I was his fellow, and it was a relatively prominent paper. And uh, that was not our paper, but it was sort of a you know topic of the town at that point. And he sat me down and says, "Look at this." You don't want to do this ever in your career. <laughs> Having uh, false information out there, that kills your career. Mm. And that makes you a bad researcher. So don't ever compromise your integrity in your research. And I think that sounds really mundane and basic, but um, that example and his stern warning uh, has stuck with me uh, since, uh, since day one. That's very good advice. Um, Thank you. And obviously, thank you again for taking the time. So we have a quick lightning round that we finish with uh, for each of our guests that has absolutely nothing or limited to do with liver disease, uh, just to get to know our guest a a little better. And so uh, you've made it to the lightning round. Congratulations. So our first question, special to you, is in honor of us talking about Meld 3.0, what is your favorite third movie in a movie trilogy? Oh, 
<laughs> Alex and I were talking about this before the uh, the podcast. We were trying to come up with some too. It's it's actually kind of hard. <laughs> uh, I'll say Terminator. Okay, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I was gonna say Toy Story three. <laughs> yes, 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 that's a good one too. Yeah. That's a good one yeah. too. Terminator three. That's a good one, yeah. Adam. Yeah. So uh, the, the next question is, I think one that's certainly outlived its usefulness, but we keep asking it anyway. Um, what is your favorite liver cell? Wow. Well, I'm, I openly admit that I've never spent a day in a, in a, in a research lab in my career. Uh, so, uh, Same. Cellular level. <laughs> yeah, that makes three of us. <laughs> uh, question is a bit foreign to me. I think that the cell type that is underappreciated, I think, in endothelial cells. Um, okay. For end-stage liver disease, they play a hugely important role uh, in generating photoreputation. So I, I want to be uh, advocating for the, the, the little guy uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in the liver. Yeah. Great. Love it. Well, I, th I think that's all. Thank you again. You've been very generous with your time. And I know we've both learned a lot. I think everybody else will too. So uh, thank you very much, Dr. Kim. Um, thank you, Dr. Kim. Pleasure. Pleasure. Uh, Good luck with it, this uh, project. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you again to Dr. Kim. Uh, what do you think, Adam? I thought that was a super interesting interview. Super interesting. Really, you know, trying to address the disparities in, you know, in, transplant allocation really interesting look back on the history mm -hmm. of the meld score um and i i think having read the paper you know, and listening to him talk about it i felt like i learned a lot about the nuts and bolts in a way mm -hmm. that is clinically relevant about the potential changes to the score that i think just sort of at face value maybe not a lot of people would appreciate the nuance yeah so i, I think from that perspective if you know if you're someone who is has read the paper and had some questions about sort of the the different um, the weights of the different variables. I, I feel like he he did a really great job of explaining it and and really kind of taught us a lot about how the score works, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think that there was a lot of practical things that came out of it. Something that definitely stuck with me towards the end of the interview was when he was sort of talking about what meld is supposed to be for or not for. And that it's really a mortality prediction algorithm. And so by virtue of that, it's theoretically saying who is at highest risk for dying in the next 30, 90 days. And so priority is largely driven by uh, need. And need is largely right. defined as who will die if they don't get a liver. But I think you know, in my mind, and in a lot of people's minds, MELD has also stood as a proxy for like ways to eliminate disparities and that kind of thing. And I think his point being that, you know, MELD is not supposed to do that, we can have other structures in place to do that, um, was one that definitely makes me think a lot about how, how to tweak allocation separate from it just being sort of MELD based, because, you know, he did mention that MELD was credited for eliminating some amount of racial disparities in transplantation for those on the wait list, which does very little for all of the many disparities, some of which we've talked about on the show, of getting people to the wait list um, from underrepresented uh, and minoritized communities. 
And now the new MEL 3.0 will help with gender disparities. But again, that's from a mortality perspective. And so thinking about how else to change allocation so that it's meld plus other factors potentially or change, you know, how we list or any number of other sort of uh, pressure points to allow for a more equitable system beyond just one that's looking at survival of those that are actually getting on the list. Totally. You can envision a future where it's not just a meld score, but a meld as a cog or a, mm-hmm. a significant part of an overall different equation or sort of uh, collection of components that helps determine, you know, where an organ goes and not necessarily the, the meld being the, you know, end all be all in terms of, of how, I don't know, it was, it was very fascinating yeah. um, to hear him talk about it. Yeah. And I'm glad people that are that thoughtful and smart are the ones creating uh, the scores that we we live by and many people, um, you know, live and die by. Right. Well, yes, Alex, this is episode one yes. of season three. What a pleasure. A, a pleasure as always. Two shout outs. First, okay. always to Andy Coyle. Thanks for listening. Thank and uh, today is my sister's birthday. So happy birthday, Becky. Happy birthday, Becky. And with that, and with that, bye, Alex. Bye, Adam. <laughs>